This is Jack of All Trades, Master of Nothing, a podcast that talks about, well, a bunch of stuff and celebrates those who do a little bit of everything. Hello, hello, and how is your Monday going? I can't hear you, but I hope it's going really well. I keep forgetting that people don't usually probably listen to this on Mondays, but that's when it comes out. So there you go. Anywho, thank you so much for tuning in. I am so excited for this week to share this episode because honestly, it was really freaking cool. I had the immense pleasure and privilege of interviewing music legends of Broadway, Mary Mitchell Campbell and Meg Zervoulis. These ladies are utter powerhouses in the Broadway community um, and they conduct and they music arrange and they are the music directors, which is basically the person in charge on the creative team of all of the music, the pit, the orchestrations, everything. So I don't know how many little tidbits you've gathered about me so far while listening to this, but I am a huge, huge music nerd and I very, very much admire these ladies as being these huge role models in in paving the way for women in music as conductors and as, as music directors. It's it's quite incredible. Like they they definitely are trailblazers and they have produced amazing, amazing work. Just to name a few, uh, some of the shows Meg's been involved with are The Prom, West Side Story, Mean Girls, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, lots of cool, 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 cool shows, and that's just a few of them. And for Mary Mitchell, she's also worked on Mean Girls, The Prom, uh, she's worked on Christian Chenoweth shows. She's worked with so many celebrities in a pop career, Finding Neverland, Big Fish, The Adams Family Company, Sweetie and Todd. You just, it goes on and on and on and on. So these ladies are quite literally incredible. And I was completely fangirling just to have a conversation and, and learn more about them. Now, before I ramble any further, uh, here is our interview with Meg Zervoulis and Mary Mitchell Campbell. Hey guys, like, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this and, and to sit down and talk with me. Thank Thanks you. for having us. So... Before we kind of get back into the two of you and your your badassery, basically, I just want to kind of give the readers a little bit of a, or the readers, the listeners a little bit of a background on you, respectively. Um, I guess we could start with Meg. Could you give us a little bit of a background on where you grew up and um, where you're from and kind of how you got into music? Uh, sure. Um, I grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, where much of my family still lives. I went to public school for elementary and high school, um, and I took piano lessons from the age of five and ended up uh, starting private lessons in New York around age eight uh, in a prep school and stayed in the prep school until 
uh, age 18. Then um, I went to Carnegie Mellon for my undergrad, a major in piano performance with a minor in conducting. Then I went to Manhattan School for a semester, uh, Manhattan School of Music, and then uh, dropped out to do my first off-Broadway music directing gig. And then um, there was a mixture of teaching and playing since then, and then ultimately uh, Broadway and, and other commercial music. That's amazing. And I actually didn't know that you went to Carnegie Mellon. I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm, in, I'm kind of outside of Pittsburgh right now, and I have been for a while. Um, but that's so cool. So spent spent a good amount of time in Pittsburgh then. Yes. Hell yeah. And then um, Mary Mitchell, um, if you want to, if you would like to give a little, the listeners a little bit on your background, that'd be awesome. Um, sure. I grew up in uh, North Carolina on a farm. Um, in a very, very different um, <laughs> kind of world than the one I live in now. Uh, and so I dreamed of, you know, getting access to more arts opportunities. And when I was, I started playing piano in churches, like just um, by ear when I was, you know, six. Wow. Um, and then I started official lessons when I was eight. And I started playing in restaurants when I was 10. And then I <laughs> left home at 16 to go to a conservatory in North Carolina called the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, where I did two years of high school, but it was sort of like you could take college classes as well. So I did a kind of hybrid last two years of high school mixed with college. And then um, after that, I decided to go to a liberal arts college because <laughs> um, I'd done conservatory for two years and felt like I was going to graduate and not know anything but music. So I went to um, a place called Furman University, which is in Greenville, South Carolina, where I was a piano performance major with a religion minor and um, was like pro my whole, I'm from a family of ministers. So like there was a moment when I thought I was going to like go to, into seminary. So I applied to seminary in New York City at Union Theological and was going to go down that road. And then but just decided to give Broadway a, like a go. So moved to New York and pursued that. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually didn't, I didn't know that um, you kind of came up from, yeah, the, the minister family background. I have a, there's a few ministers in, in my family as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it definitely uh, has, has a color. It colors that part of the family, you know. For sure. Yeah. Upbringing. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that you had a religion minor, is that similar to like, I guess explain. So are, did you just study, was it one religion in particular or do you study like multiple religions? Is it kind of like philosophy? I mean, it can depend on what you do. I, I was studying everything. So I was really, really close to my chaplains at the school. And, um, and I took a class, I took a sociology class called social problems that, um, really rocked my world when I was a sophomore and I decided to start a theater company to raise money for sort of people experiencing homelessness. And I just got really into the sort of social justice intersections. And, um, that was what I like to call early a step <laughs> from my, yes. but that, that was sort of my college version of that. But, um, so I started these, this theater company where you would do the show, but like, if you did the show, like I did the fantastics and you, my um, marketing was around, we'll build four walls in a, in a home. And we, we did it for Habitat for Humanity. And everybody in the show had to build the house. Like that was the deal. So 
it was great. It was a great experience. And I got really close to my chaplains, but we were, it was definitely, I was raised Southern Baptist, but it was definitely like a covering a lot of religions, which mm-hmm. um, introduced me to a lot of Eastern religion, which was great. Cause then I ended up working in India and working with a lot of people that were Hindu and Muslim. So wow, it all kind of came cir- full circle later. That's cool. And then you kind of gave Broadway a shot and then you started running A-Step and then you've kind of, you've been doing the Broadway circuit ever since. Yes. So then I moved to New York and I pursued Broadway uh, and I started working in a lot of different kind of benefits and off-Broadway and then eventually Broadway shows and so on. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So, and then, and Meg, you, you were also involved in A-Step, is that correct? Um, yes, I've helped with uh, some of the education events and then just supporting as a friend of MMC from afar. Yeah. I, a I major like- support, though, I will say. A major support. <laughs> a major. I mean, it's a huge thing. I mean, I like kind of joined and then I randomly I felt like so I did the first time I joined that like the Zoom call, like when you were doing early Zoom calls in March. Um, I kind of got an email and I was like, oh, Mary Mitchell, oh, they're doing like a, like a support thing for artists. I was like, all right, well, I <laughs> need support right now because it's, uh, it's, shit's hitting the fan. So I was like, well, you know what? Hey, I'll like hop on and see all these other artists are doing. And that was like such a cool thing that you did for people. And it was so nice to like hear from other artists and, and support each other. Did you guys continue to do that? I kind of fell off of it. Um. Yeah, we did it through, uh, I think we disbanded it around November, but yeah, we kept it going for most of 2020, um, and developed an interesting, like cross section of people and, um, yeah, it was good. I mean, you know, and then we've started a wellness Wednesday, um, event through ASTEP that was just about helping the artist community cope. Yeah, it's definitely, um, rocked everyone's world. I mean, you know, obviously outside of being an artist as well, but just like the impact that is directly had on the industry of performing arts is so like crazy. Um, so anyway, it's such a, <laughs> it's such a heavy subject, um, but I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into it more and like kind of talk about how you guys have been passing the time and how you've been using A-Step. And actually, could you give us a little bit um, more of an explanation as to what A-Step is, um, just for those who don't know or haven't heard of it yet and how they can kind of check that out? Of course. Okay. So A-Step is a nonprofit that I started 15 years ago, which we, um, we were in our 15-year anniversary year in this year. So we literally just announced that it's our 15-year anniversary this past week. But um, Ooh, congratulations. Thanks. It's crazy to believe. But anyway, um, yeah, it's an organization I started back in 2006. I mean, officially, I started it in 2005, but we didn't become a, a nonprofit until 2006. And it's an organization that believes in the transformative power of the arts to work with youth from under-resourced communities um, that's been working internationally and, and domestically over the last 15 years, but using the arts as a way of teaching life skills and getting really focused on um, helping kids believe that they can go to college and become a doctor or become, you know, a really successful business person. It's not really about necessarily getting them to be an artist, but but to think like an artist mm-hmm. and think in a creative, um, outside the box, problem solving way, and also develop imagination skills where they usually come from situations where that's not necessarily something that their parents are keen to foster because their lives have often been met with a lot of disappointment. 
so they don't necessarily push uh, their children to dream as much as as we would like them to. So we're we're really into, um, you know, helping them find that they're good at things they didn't know they were good at. Yeah, that's amazing. It actually, honestly, it kind of reminds me of like like an artist driven big brothers, big sisters sort of thing. I was talking to Mary Sugarman about she was super involved in big brothers and big sisters and and has been a big sister for like a a long time um, and has developed a really close relationship with someone. Um, But it kind of, yeah, it kind of, it gives me vibes of like using art and music and imagination and creativity to, yeah, like develop really lasting and significant relationships with like the youth of New York city, which is incredible. Yeah, definitely. And we, you know, for the, yes, exactly. For the kids in New York City that we work with, it is exactly a lot like a Big Brother Big Sister program, just with an arts foundation. And then our, I've always likened our international work to something like an artist Peace Corps. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. I, you know, it's something that I've heard about. I've I've felt like even during this time, I've like got so much going on. I, I like really need to make that more of a priority to like really get involved with ASAP and just like other, you know, things going on, other programs that are happening and like, cause it, it's just such a beautiful message and such a, such a valuable way of spending your time, you know? Um, so I really super admire you for doing that. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I will link all of that information in the show notes for any listeners that are like, Oh wow, that's really amazing. (laughs) And then they can check it out. Um, Thanks. Yeah, of course. Um, I want people to know, you know, and they should, they should absolutely know. Um, And then, okay, so now I kind of want to open up the discussion. So now that, you know, our listeners are a little more familiar with who you are and, you know, the the different things that both of you do. I kind of want to talk about um, women in music in particular, because it's, you know, it has been for a long time, like a, a lot of other industries, um, a more a masculine dominated field. And one reason why, first of all, I asked you on this and two, I just like look up to you guys so much. I think I <laughs> maybe was like a little tipsy at one of the like workshops and told Meg, like I like fangirled over Meg. I think she was like, oh my, oh my gosh. But no, I'm, I'm really serious in that. Um, the, the respect for both of you um, for what you've done for women in music and the leadership roles that you have are just absolutely incredible. And, and I kind of want to, I want to ask about your personal journeys, uh, through that and through doing music direction. Um, so I guess we could start with Meg since we haven't heard from you in a second. So if, if you want to kind of like maybe your first experience as a music director when you were off Broadway and like how that kind of, how that unfolded for you. Sure. Um, it wasn't always an interest of mine. I started working as a music director in my junior year of high school in a place called New Jersey Performing Arts Center, which is more commonly known as NJ Pack. And um, the first show was West Side Story, and I was working as uh, what the woman called an associate music director, which at the time was a total novelty term to me. I knew nothing about it. Um, but I had always kind of aimed for something in the Broadway land. When I saw Lion King, when I was younger, I saw a woman conducting. And uh, the story goes such that 
that's kind of all that I was able to talk about after. Um, and oh. as you know, Lion King is all about the puppetry and the the amazing entertainment and the glorious score. But it was just like all about who is this woman? How is she doing that, et cetera? Um, my first um, off-Broadway job was with uh, a show called Rated P for Parenthood, which mm-hmm. played at the West Side Theater. And the friends I made in that project are friends that have become lifelong friends. And actually many of them are my neighbors. Um, We developed it in New Jersey and then out of luck, it ended up crossing the river and having um, about a year, a year long run. And so that was super duper trial by fire. Um, And then over time I worked a lot at paper mill and that's um, kind of indirectly directly how I met Mary Mitchell. And then you speak so much about leadership in the world of female music directors and women in music. And um, Mary Mitchell absolutely kind of plucked me out and, and saw something. And, and I have so much of my career here in New York to owe to uh, people such as Mary Mitchell and some of my um, dear colleagues at Paper Mill. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Mary Mitchell is definitely where she's on mute. She'll be like, Oh my God. But, <laughs> but singing your praises, like seriously, like I, I'm not sure that you realize how, how much of an impact you have had on on women in music it's like honestly pretty incredible so mary will you or mary mitch will you um share your story then on, on how you've kind of uh gotten into that you know you took a chance and then it, you just like yeah you're like this powerhouse now wow thanks um <laughs> you know i don't feel like that powerhouse but all the time but um <laughs> but i so greatly appreciate it and i will also just say that i frequently fangirl over meg so i join you in that um and i don't need alcohol <laughs> to yeah, do it. Well, i do it, I do it, it relatively just, frequently give um, me courage to yes do it, exactly <laughs> um but i would say i um so i mean you know my whole thing was growing up in the in north carolina and just sort of being so far away from new york city and so far away from broadway um i i got bitten by the sort of theater bug i guess in high school uh when i went to work in a summer dinner theater in the mountains of North Carolina, um, which was helping me pay for school because I really needed to financially supplement um, the situation my family was in. So I was working really hard to like pay for things, but I found this dinner theater job where I could play piano and I learned a lot of musicals and it was kind of a win-win because I also got decent tips and things. So it was like very financially helpful. (laughs) Um, And so I did that for many summers. And during that time, got really interested in theater. And when I was in college and I started that theater company that I sort of call early A-step, was um, the time that I thought, wait, I think I might want to pursue this. So after I graduated college, I decided to move to New York. Um, I had a small detour as a real estate agent was exciting um oh i've done the same it was horrible <laughs> I, hated it so much. I was like this is not it this is not it <laughs> you're like this is not what i want to do um it was it was okay you know i was it was okay it wasn't like my life's dream but i, I put it but it paid bills and that was great and then i moved to new york and got a lot of temp jobs and um tried to meet people and placed uh like an ad in backstage <laughs> Mm. to say, hey, I play the piano and I coach, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I got, I did a benefit for Broadway Cares that um, uh, a conductor named Jack Lee came to see. 
and he pursued me after the concert and said that, you know, he was interested in potentially working with me and ended up bringing me in to work on a big benefit performance of Sweet Charity with um, a lot of celebrity people that was benefiting Broadway Cares. And so I went to that and um, during that process met Cy Coleman and Cy Coleman really just decided to become my mentor and really changed, I think, my trajectory pretty significantly because he, I guess, saw something in me that I didn't see um, at the time, but he, he just decided to really foster my education and was really tough on me, but really um, very invested and ended up bringing me on to a bunch of different projects and just letting me be in the room with him. Um, so I did a lot with him and I did a lot of like benefits and concerts and new musicals. I was really focused on new musicals. I went to the O'Neill as a music director pretty early on in my career and stayed for five summers. Um, and I did just a lot of readings and workshops for no money, like a lot of them. <laughs> and um, was really just loving creating in that way and pretty much was pretty sure I would never do Broadway, actually. And then um, – I ended up meeting, I had a lot of, you know, interesting friends in the net and like the musical theater network, but I ended up meeting John Doyle, director John Doyle, who mm. pursued me for a company, musical company. Oh, wow. And I, you know, went on an interview with him because I thought he sounded really fascinating. And I also yeah. thought there was like zero chance that anyone was going to, um, hire me <laughs> because I had no credits in Broadway or anything. So mm -hmm. I just was like, well, that's not really, but it'd be really good to meet him. You know, just the experience. I'm always, I was always like interested in doing things for the experience. So I did it for the experience and it ended up that he, it's sort of a funny long story, but he ended up offering me the job and I um, ended up taking it. And, so that, and that really changed again, my trajectory. <laughs> so the sort of mentorship of it all was, was pretty, intense. And then I guess later, so I guess I really benefited from men who really took an interest in, in like investing in, in women leaders. Mm -hmm. And then as I got further down the industry, it became more and more clear to me that it was my opportunity and my gift to be able to pay that forward. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's when I sort of really started looking closely at mentorship and, um, sort of across the board and then more significantly focused on um, women and people of color through my career. So that's been, I think, the general overview of coming up through the industry as a female. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Like, and first of all, Cy Coleman, like, holy, holy crap. Like, that's amazing. It's like to, to have been mentored by him and then, you know, also kind of be taken under the wing or just like, um, learning alongside John Doyle is also incredible. So listeners who aren't necessarily in the Broadway circuit or don't know who those people are, they're like huge, like composers and directors of, of, um, of the Broadway like genre. They're just like iconic people. So, um, so that's amazing that like your mentors were, were those people and I think what's also fascinating and that kind of what I want to point out is like you know you're talking about paying it forward 
and how like Meg and I were just fangirling over <laughs> you, it's like, you know, I would assume at that time, you know, you were kind of fangirling over Cy Coleman and over, you know, John Doyle and all, you know, these composers and, and writers and, and musicians and directors that when you were, you know, starting out, that's who you looked up to. And it's crazy because I feel like, you know, I'm like now the little chick coming in and I'm like looking at you guys and I'm like, holy, like, holy cow. Like, it's just so cool that you have been able to kind of become you know you're in those positions of of your mentors now and like you've grown through that and done that like it's it's insane it's amazing it's I mean it's a real gift I I really do think like you know you always hope that you get to pay it forward so I think it's a real gift to be able to be in positions where you can recommend people for things and you Mm -hmm. can provide the kind of um advice and guidance that you wish people had been able to tell you when you were going through it um So, yeah, I mean, I I do. I genuinely I consider it a real privilege. And, you know, and I was lucky enough to work with with Meg, who um, continues to blow me away with everything she does. But she's the ultimate mentor, I think. Oh, boy. What a treat (laughs) that you guys are on here today. Yay. Um, (laughs) um, But um, okay, so I kind of want to move into you're talking about like having advice or like having, you know, wanting to guide young musicians and and people coming into this business, women of color or women, women of color, of course, and other people of color. And I want to start to get into like your mindset through the process to offer guidance for our our younger listeners on here. So Meg, would you would you like to share any anecdotes of wisdom and and working and up leveling and taking the next bigger thing? Like how how have you kind of gotten yourself through that? You mean getting ourselves professionally through that or still in connection to the mentoring aspect I guess you professionally and then we'll get into more of like the mentoring things how did you specifically allow your wings to open up and start to like get more confident as you up leveled through the industry ah great um so I do coming from the classical background there are so many kind of cliche sayings like practice 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 that's how you get to Carnegie Hall preparation is everything the discipline of kind of locking yourself in a practice room. And I truly believe much of that. And so I have just tried to throw myself entirely into each project that comes along the way to be prepared and inquisitive and bother MMC with hundreds of detail questions (laughs) just to kind of um, allow the nerves to subside in the newness of being kind of in a new place or working with a new caliber caliber of talent or collaborating with major directors um, in my kind of younger years. Um, I, I have always felt that kind of just knowing more knowledge and preparation uh, is not something to be overlooked. This also comes with a little bit of kind of like um just grit, which I don't know what the source is of that, Um, just resilience through childhood, um, need-based seeking of work from a young age, whatever it might be, it's kind of this, um, this melting pot of skills and, and natural characteristics that help to make each experience a little bit less daunting, all the while still exciting and kind of taking, taking the next big step. 
and and the help of of colleagues is is the biggest thing really yeah it it seems like yeah it's a mix of like resilience and grit and then like discipline of um keeping your eye on the goal and and just working towards achieving that I feel like often, you know, I talk about this. I mean, my perspective is an actor, right, and and a musician, but um, it's like that's the only thing you kind of hold on to is just like, oh, I see it. I know I'm close. All right, you just gotta keep going. Just gotta keep going. And it's like, I'm assuming that it it's very similar to like the very similar field in, in you know same industry, as far as just like keeping your focus and just keep going and and trust that whatever next thing you're gonna do is gonna lead to something else. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, Mary. What Mary Mitchell? I, I apologize. I'm um, making sure that no, it happens all the time. It's very confusing. It's because my parents were Southern, and like my, I was named after both my grandmothers, and I'm come from an area where like double names are really common. Mm-hmm. But it's super weird, and especially in New York City, it's very weird. I mean, it's a beautiful so. name. It's definitely Mary Mitchell. Like it flows. I just like I think I'm just like <laughs> looking at your name, and I just keep looking at the first part of your name. So I'm like, damn it, Sarah, come on. All good. All good. So MMC, I'll just like I'll give you. Yeah, okay. MMC is a good. That's what Meg calls me. Also, a lot of my friends call me that. Perfect, MMC. Um, would you like to offer your um, kind of? input um to the same question that I gave to Meg which was like you know how how have you kind of gained the courage to to move up each level because like that's what you started out kind of being like oh, well I don't even know where this is gonna go like I don't expect anything really I don't know but then you know each step you're you're opening your wings and kind of flying to a new level each time like how did you kind of get yourself through that obviously you were mentored as well but like do can you recall any of like that mental um, state that you were in? Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, um, I, I like I said, I did have great mentors, but I would say I, I also like Meg was kind of of the school of preparation. Um, you know, cause I always believed that preparation and opportunity were sort of your ticket, right? If you can be prepared and then get an opportunity, then there you go. So <laughs> the opportunity part does seem a little bit like luck to me in some regards, but, um, but I definitely was like, I'm going to have the preparation part down. Yeah. I have control. <laughs> and, um, <over> that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's that, it's that whole thing about controlling the things that you can and, and letting go of the rest. Um, so I, I definitely did a lot of that. I did a lot of, you know, working on my skills. Um, I did a lot of practicing and, um, trying to be a really good site reader, trying to be a really good site transposer. Um, you know, the situation with getting Cy Coleman as my mentor, I think really happened because of that preparation, because I, I started to learn coming from a classical background. This is partially why Meg and I are, I think so tight as we have very similar backgrounds, but, um, coming from the classical background, like, you know, you're not asked to do the same kinds of things as you would from a jazz background or a pop background. And, um, and so I had taken, uh, myself a goal to to become like a really good sight reader and to really work on transposing um, keys, you know, looking at music that's in one key but play it in a different key. And so when I was working with Cy Coleman on this concert version of Sweet Charity, um, Cheetah Rivera was in it. And there was a moment early on, I was like, you know, very low on the 
hierarchy of the situation. I was like very like at the bottom rung, but I was like rehearsal piano person. And I was at the piano and he came over to the piano with Cheetah and said, Cheetah wants to sing this song in the key of F. Can you play it in F? And it was not, you know, there were no chord symbols to sort of help you cheat by or there just wasn't much there to help you. So it was a real test to that skill. And I was really grateful that I had put myself through my own little gauntlet of learning those things because in that moment I was able to do it in a way that felt really successful and he was really impressed by. Um, so I feel like that kind of stuff is really important. Yeah. <laughs> just doing your homework on some level. Well, that's pretty fascinating because that actually brings up another question here is like – or just really a, a, an observation, which is like I felt very similar on in certain points in your life. And I don't know if it's just like an instinctual thing or an intuitive thing. I'm not really sure. But it's like I've had moments like that as well where that I vividly remember that it was like, no, I know I need to study this and focus on this. And, and one of those for me was um, playing the trumpet, which I like I remember having a kind of like a fight or an argument with my mother when I was in third grade like legitimately um because I like remember being like no I'm gonna play the trumpet and she's like you wanted to play the violin for years like I'm not sure why you sw you're switching all of a sudden and um because it was you know fourth grade's coming up and that's when you start to learn and in, in elementary school or at least where I'm from and I was like, nope, it's going to be trumpet. And she was like, okay. Like, I remember her being kind of, like, irritated that I had, like, switched. And then, you know, years later, even in college, like, I'd played through the marching band and was a huge music nerd, was really involved in choir, which I kind of want to, like, wrap back up. And we'll we'll kind of go back to that and talk about conducting in a bit. But um, I did, uh, yeah, marching band and, like, was, like, pretty naturally good at it, but, like, didn't pursue it too much, like, just enough to be, like, like first chair but not putting like a lot of effort into it if that makes any sense um but then so I stopped playing in college and then I came back to it like I don't know it was like sophomore no it was like senior year I remember being like I need to practice like playing and singing like that's really important and I, obviously there was once out on Broadway and things were coming but I was like no like I have like this really deep instinctual feeling and when I moved to New York like I well, even in college, I was like, we need to do a unit that's actor musician unit. And they were like, like the other kids were like, you're crazy. Like, no, we're not doing that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And immediately, as soon as I moved to New York, I had told I, I asked my parents to mail me my trumpet. I was like, I need it now. I don't know why, but I need it. And literally like three, two or three weeks later, I got an audition for Cabaret, which that's what I ended up booking like immediately because I had just like kind of thought it lined up so well. So it's so interesting that like it sounds like Mary Mitchell, like you had that kind of same feeling where you're like, you know what, I, I really feel like I'm going to work on this thing and I'm going to commit to it. And then, you know, that moment arrived when you really needed it and then it, it worked, you know, that's like pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I feel like I've had a couple of those just amazing good moments of where I've, the, like, I actually studied for the right test, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. I, and I, and I got the, and I got the opportunity to take the test in a, in a moment when, um, that, you know, paid off. But I will say, you know, I, and I love that you have us on here together because, like I said, I'm such a big fan of Meg, but I will say when I met Meg, I met Meg because I was um, looking for somebody that, you know, somebody new 
to work on a project and she had been recommended by several people. And I reached out to, to ask her if I could meet with her and maybe hear her play something. And she came in and she had an entire book <laughs> that was like with a table of contents. So organized. Meg. Wow. It's in, it, now that I know Meg, I'm like, of course she did. But like, she had like a table of contents and she had every like style that I could have possibly wanted to hear. And she was incredibly prepared. Um, and she could play anything in that book and she could play it at a really, really high level. And I sort of left the meeting being like, well, okay, damn, that, that girl's amazing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do, I just think that the, it's a funny thing as we look at what, what the industry is going to look like coming back and just using this downtime wisely that there's in whatever it is that you want to be doing. I just think that the sort of metaphor of that, of being, of doing that work so that you are ready <laughs> when the opportunity comes, it just can't be um, overstated as to how important that is in like creating success. Yeah, absolutely. Meg, do you have any moments like that that you can like recall on the fly of like, oh, like I just have this funny feeling that I need to do this thing and then it actually ends up being it, like turning into something? Well, that was definitely one of them. I, I believe there was like one or two days notice or something. <laughs> and I remember right. <laughs> asking my family, like, what do you think? What about this one? What about this Jason Robert Brown piece? And my sister, who's in theater as well, was like, yeah, JRB, just anyone who could play that is amazing. So I just remember working on this binder. And I it it does, you know, Broadway is this thing that for many, and MMC said it before, sometimes it can just really truly feel unreachable. A lot of my yeah. students who are interested in the musical theater world, just it really does feel like this thing that is only this kind of combination of luck and being in the right place at the right time. Um, but so so when I knew that I could have this, this opportunity to meet MMC, who of course I had known about for years um, and kind of studying from afar, I just back to the preparation thing, I just wanted to basically spend the next 48 hours just making sure that just in case that was the moment, I just wanted to make sure that that binder had kind of everything ready to go and, and all that stuff. And I will say, I remember right after that, I think it was then like two days later, I was in the first, my first like Broadway rehearsal room for Finding Neverland, which MMC was in the middle of at the time. And it happened to be my birthday. And Aww the associate on that show kind of when I left for the day um, was like, come back for a second. Can you come back? I'll meet you downstairs. And MMC had gotten like a birthday cupcake for me. You know, we had just Aww. met and just began working together, but these are the kinds of like glimpses of humanity that is in the midst of this really crazy, um, competitive, difficult um, profession and industry. And so I just, it just, there was just this really wonderful feeling of kind of guidance. And um, I always say that I have guardian angels and that, that was one of those moments. I just felt so um, welcomed, I guess I would say, which for an upcoming woman in the industry is, is kind of everything. So. Yeah. I mean, I think even Mary Mitchell offered, like the first time I met Mary Mitchell was, it was for her final callback for Mean Girls. And I, was so, yeah it was I was so nervous Mary oh my god I mean I think you could tell because Casey got up and was like you know it's okay like you can't go. <laughs> I was like shaking I was so scared it was incredible I mean it was like such a thrill but you helped me so much like because we got to sing for I don't know, like half an hour or something you kind of go through the yeah. song and that 
yeah, like that, like, honestly, I thought like Alex Gemignani was my teacher and friend kind of, I think he was helping me with it. And he was like, oh, no, this is like a way for you to like, you know, kind of like get to know Mary Mitchell and, and just like kind of hang out and, and like relax and, and be confident so that when you're presenting it. And I like couldn't fathom like how that could be because everything to me, you know, as an auditioner, right, it's just like, and, and this was actually a flawed mindset that I've worked on a lot, which is like, I have to prove, I have to prove, like I have to show them, I have to, do, instead of just being like, you know what, no, like I got this and I'm a pleasant person and like I'd love to work with them if possible, but like, you know, it's okay, like we're just human, like that humanity part is so easily removed, right? And um, you offered that so graciously and generously just with your presence. I don't know, there's just something about you. You're just so like chill and welcoming and um it it made at least that in that experience a lot more enjoyable even though I was definitely terrified but um it was um a great first experience for uh my first like big final callback or something and um yeah and you did a great job I totally I mean I remember your audition very vividly but I have to say like you know it's it's a funny thing I think for all of us those kinds of situations are terrifying. They just are, just are. on their very nature. <laughs> they really are. And so the more we can do, I think, for each other to just remind ourselves of our humanity and our our give ourselves permission to be vulnerable and also to try to create the safest space possible, mm-hmm. um, I think those are the things that really matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is because that's – I mean, and you know, I had this kind of same – conversation with Mary Sugarman similar thing which is like as a casting director right their whole job is like to be completely um in those spaces like all the time right like like what made to me and why I've connected with Mary Sugarman so well or at, at least feel very held by her kind of like what Meg was saying it's like this energy that um that will only make the work better for everyone. Like it can and should be, I think, an enjoyable, vulnerable, welcoming experience. And I, I don't know what, I guess it's the stakes of the situation. It's the actor or the musician, whoever's auditioning, coming in and being, wanting it so badly. There's like, if, if there's any desperation in there, that's just gonna like stink up <laughs> the situation. But if there's also just, you know, and then there's high stakes on the other side too, right? Like where they just want to, you know, you guys want to do the best job you can and make the best possible piece of art that you can. And then there's also like, you know, producers and there's a whole business side of it too. So it's like, what, what is it? That's, that'll just lead me to my next question. And I guess we can start with Meg. Like, what is it like to be on the other side of the table for, for these big, big, you know, big shows, like these million dollar monsters that are coming through and, and gonna, you know, especially with new works, because you worked on prom, correct, Meg? Yes. So what was that like, like doing like a big blockbuster like that and like and, and working from the ground up and, and being on the other side? It was really exciting. That has definitely been the highlight so far. Um, Mary Mitchell and I worked on that together. In fact, I inherited that gig from MMC. We did it together in Atlanta during the development. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved to New York, Mean Girls had started. And so we just had to kind of figure out how to, um, to manage both of those shows together. But I'll remember just going through the audition process in New York for prom. And just that, that shows all about, 
um, magic and acceptance and love and, and just kind of, again, back to humanity, putting humanity first. And it was so exciting to see these amazing, bright personalities come into the room. And you almost oftentimes at this point, um, in, you know, the, just the level of the industry, the, there are so many people who could do these roles. And so it is, it's such a difficult thing to kind of function on the other side of the table um, to have a good mix of, you know, finding the right person from the part and also making sure that everyone who walks into the room feels respected and seen. And, and I, I try as much as possible to kind of write down the names of people who did an amazing audition, but may not be right for it just to, and then save it in a folder for a future thing. You know, someone's mm-hmm. looking for an alto to record this demo for a commercial. Oh, Hey, I saw that alto a couple of weeks ago in this audition process. So, um, mm-hmm. it was exciting. And I, I definitely did kind of have to try and level up just to sit there and, and talk to Casey Nicola, who at the time was, uh, again, like kind of an apparition almost. And then right? now She's has like- become a dear friend. Um, oh. but it's, yeah, it's casting is is so difficult. And unfortunately, due to the way that the business is structured, it often is a very short time frame in which everything has to happen. So there may be someone who's absolutely amazing, but needs, you know, we would need some time um, to kind of develop and and sometimes just due to the nature of the way that the the calendar and the and the kind of the economics of the business goes, um, we're unfortunately not able to do that. So that's why I think I probably speak for both of us when I say that mentorship and and educating has become such a, a big constant of both of our careers alongside uh, Broadway work. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And like, yeah, when you, when you think of people who do good work and, and I think that's easy to forget on the other side, you know, if you don't, if I feel like acting more than anything or or auditioning in general is like mental strength than anything else is because if you're not holding on to the right side of the story, right. If you're not holding on to, you know what, I did do a good job and I'm proud of myself and you never know, like it's always, it always has to be this like, I'm hopeful, but I don't really expect anything, but I'm proud of myself. And if you're able to kind of move forward like that and let go of everything else, if you start, if I, like, I've definitely done this, it it makes you feel like shit. Like, I don't advise it. But like being like overthinking it and like going through it and being like, oh, what if I did this? What if I did that? And the reality is, is like, you don't, you don't know. Like, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it's just, it is. And, and something else will happen, you know? Um, and, um, so MMC, like what's kind of, uh, what's your, what's your thought on that auditioning process and that sitting in the room and like, how does that feel? And, you know, I'm assuming it's also exciting, like Meg said, but yeah, challenging for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it is, it's challenging. I think, I think the thing I've learned through the years and I feel like, you know, now I'm on the other side of having cast so many different things. Um, you know, there's just a reality of, of that. It's so much less personal than people really know. I mean, I think if there's one thing I could tell performers that are coming in is just to make sure that you've done your homework and that you, you have a goal of like what you want to, you know, to show up, but to not try to guess what people are looking for, because I feel like that often leads people down the wrong paths mm-hmm. when they're trying to be something that they think 
is wanted. I, I mean, I think that's actually true in so many aspects oh, yeah. of life. Oh, yeah. Everything. When we're trying to be something that we think somebody wants. Um, but, you know, it, it it's a... Um, it's, it's hard to let go of trying to, you know, do your best and try to understand that maybe your best is really just fully showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the other thing that I would, I, that I've really kind of, um, gleamed from that process is just how little, uh, there's so many elements of the situation that are out of everyone's control as far as like how many people can be in the show because of what, what the, budget is and uh what has to be covered and what the like principles roles are and does this person look too much like someone who was already cast or are are we trying to reuse a costume and is it is it you know built for someone that's two feet shorter or you know the, i mean who knows like it's there's a thousand different things um and just recognizing that at the end of the day really the people on the other side of the table are pulling for you um I mean, I I am. I'm yeah. pulling for every single person that walks in the door. Um, and I'm interested, as Meg said, like I keep a lot of lists as well. I pull them for other projects or I recommend them or I keep them. On, I keep people on files. I ask casting directors if I can either keep people's headshots or I'll take pictures of it um, because I do constantly like to just have people that I can recommend mm-hmm. to other people or that I can use for who knows what. You know, organized and prepared always. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. So this kind of launches me into wanting to like nerd out on music a little bit. Um, and that, uh, like, I have a huge like choir background, so I I can definitely relate to Meg talking about The Lion King and just like being actually my boyfriend the other day was talking about conductors like he didn't understand what they do and how magical they are and I was like don't even you don't even know what you're talking about <laughs> like don't I have to I have to like get into it with him to like kind of explain the the power of a conductor and someone that's like pretty much leading the emotional roller coaster of the song right and um, yeah, so like I was first introduced to that mostly through choir. I did all these choir competitions. So, oh, also, if you guys ever need like someone that's a really good sight singer, like let me know. Like I, I can help you out because I'm freakishly, weirdly good. At that. Always good to know. Oh, hell yeah. No, definitely keep me in mind just because like I, I don't know. Meg, were you there for, I don't know if it was for what the thing we were working on or another thing, but often I can just read it. So that's cool. I I, I enjoy challenging myself. You're saved in my phone as Sarah Bishop Soprano won excellent musicianship. That is a, that is like the very Meg. That is a very, very Meg situation right there. And it also feels very accurate to what I know about you, Sarah. Oh, but like, you. I just think that's amazing. Thank Everything you. about that sentence is amazing. I, thank you so much. Oh my God. I'm so full out. Thank you so much. No, but I, I, I think I even like make it a point, like always to look because of the choir back, you know, that's a big deal. If you're not watching the conductor, like there's a lot of people that don't. I'm like, what are you doing? They're, they're telling you everything you need to not just watch them like and I remember making eye contact with Meg when we did a presentation for a workshop like a lot like she I think I feel like you knew that I was gonna be watching you because I I love to watch you too like you guys have so much fun it's so cool to watch you like that's the other thing is like you're so in the music and if you know 
you're often also playing, which is insane. Like, I don't think people understand how challenging that is. If you don't play the piano and you've never conducted before, to do it at the same time is like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I'm sure you get better at it and you practice it, but like, okay, so Meg, what? Will you share with us like your first like conducting slash like piano experience or like how cool did it feel to like hold the baton for the first time? Um, Holding the baton for the first time with actual other people being there probably mm-hmm. happened in college, maybe a little sooner in church. I can't recall exactly, but um, actually, interestingly, my conducting teacher is Alex Gemignani's grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Dr. Robert Page, amazing, um, Southern Baptist, um, choral leader, arranger, a uh, friend of Leonard Bernstein. I mean, all this amazing, he's just yeah. an amazingly experienced person and casual. yeah, casual. And Yanni's, they're insane. Like yeah. they're, they're family and also oh my gosh. so kind, all of them. <laughs> so amazing. All of them. I, I, I got to get Alex on here. I emailed him. I'm going to have to email him again. Yeah. Like, Alex, you're coming on. Yes. Um, um, and I'll remember the first thing we looked at was Wonderful Town, which, you know, if you know about the difficulty of the Bernstein scores, that's basically what you'd want to give a freshman. So um, not. <laughs> uh, um, and I remember he sat at the piano and he um, was kind of using hyperbole in his performance to interpret my kind of first attempts at really conducting a difficult score like that. And for weeks upon weeks, we would have this one hour lesson a week. And then he just continued to kind of demand as a performer that I was saying something with my arms and my body language and, mm-hmm. and, you know, little tips, like if you're leaning in, it, it kind of show you shouldn't be in need. You, you want to welcome your performers. And just, there are so many one-liners and quips and, and kind of, um, psychosomatic things that he he taught me through that education that I carry with me to this day. Um, this is, you know, of course, regarding baton conducting. Um, piano conducting is a is a whole other completely separate set of skills. Um, yeah, but seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's so fascinating that it it's like, I mean, yeah, I haven't like conducted a whole lot. Like I did like once in choir, I did an Eric Whitaker piece of course I give like a, I had a choice to pick the piece and I gave the choir Eric Whitaker. <laughs> I mean listen like a, an advanced choir would be really cool but like when the pitches are like eh, anyway I guess I guess um I guess it's a good conductor to use for that just because it's so weird and so crunchy um so who cares what note you sing it's gonna be crunchy <laughs> But the whole point was to, yeah, have like a push and pull kind of song. Um, But I've never tried piano conducting, mostly because my piano, I think, is too weak to do it. But I highly respect that. Um, So for Mary Mitchell, um, what was your first conducting experience? And yeah, what like... How how did that go for you? It's it's just crazy. You guys are almost like dancers. You're you're using body language and and like yeah, like mental. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I was always like the pianist, and then I was the the you know, I started to get really into the music directing thing, and when I was back to that you know program I started in college, um, the great thing about that situation was. I was in a school where there just wasn't a musical theater department because I had left conservatory, gone to a liberal arts school that had a really strong music department, but not 
any musical theater. It was a classical music department. And I had decided like, oh, I think I might want to pursue Broadway. Maybe I should go somewhere that has a musical theater department. But I also kind of didn't want to change schools (laughs) for a lot of reasons. But I was like, "Mm, I could go somewhere or I could just start my own program. Um, (laughs) And the great thing about starting your own program, which in in it, like is also daunting, of course, and insane. But, but of course you did that because you you would do your own it's, program. Yeah, it's very like in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that's such a that's such a me thing to do <laughs> to be like, oh yeah, well, I'll just start my own program then. I don't want to transfer. But the but the the sort of gift of that was that I was able to um, give myself a bunch of different jobs because I was sort of producing and I would often be the director. Um, as well as, you know, the music director. And so I learned an enormous amount. I started directing operas in school and um, learning a lot about staging and just really sort of understanding the designer. You know, it doesn't hurt you to learn about every aspect, whether or not you're pursuing those aspects in the big picture or not. Like, it was an amazing experience. Um, And during that time, I got more comfortable being in front of people. But Truly, I mean, to be completely honest, like I always loved like being behind the piano Mm -hmm. and being because that was my comfort zone. Like I really knew how to play the piano. So for me, stick conducting, you know, when you're not at a piano, um, which are, as Meg pointed out, vastly different things like that kind of conducting scared me. Um, And I did not study it uh, formally in school. I didn't study it until I came out of college and then I like actually hired a teacher and um, and studied it in private lessons because I realized it was a skill that I was going to need to have. So piano conducting was always super easy for me. And then stick conducting was terrifying. So I was always trying to avoid stick conducting for like a long time. And then I ended up finally getting over that fear because um, I got put into enough situations where I had to do it enough of those sort of like sink or swim situations. And I I felt like while I was probably not a championship swimmer, I was doing okay. And then I got better. And, you know, a lot of it's just experience and learning how to, as you point out, use your body in a specific way. But I, I grew up being pretty coordinated from sports and I dare I say it, cheerleading. Terrible admission. It's a terrible admission. But anyway, so, so like, so I kind of, you know, it all kind of made sense. And as Meg will, I mean, Meg and I both, I think, have a lot of fun, depending on the the kind of show um, that we're doing. We we both have a good bit of fun. Oh yeah, with it. It seems like when you when you watch you guys when you're doing your job and you can see you doing it, even when your little your little heads are sticking out of the pit, like you, you know, you can tell it just radiates off of you. Um, I I was interested, like so obviously with baton conducting like i'm also gathering information because i don't i'm not as familiar with it but what i do know is like you know you're reading an entire score and you're you're leading you know as opposed i i suppose piano conducting right you're also part of the pit and you're i mean it depends on where you are if you're in the pit during a show like you're kind you're still kind of leading everyone but i'm assuming you're mostly looking at your piano score as opposed to like, oh, yeah, if you're going to conduct like an orchestra, like you're going to be looking at the full score. I mean, I don't know. Is that how that works? And then because my only experience, uh, well, besides the choir one time, I auditioned for like drum major and they would test us with like listening to a really hard 
song that would change meter and you'd have you'd have to like but you didn't have the score you just have to like listen and like anticipate where the meter changed like how do you practice that a and b like what is like the difference in what you're reading and and what you're looking at i guess we could start with meg yeah i love this nerddom so (laughs) (laughs) um so there's something called a piano conductor score or short-term pc which is different than the pv which is piano vocal so piano vocal is what we would use in a rehearsal room it's what would be shared with the actors most typically um with the sound designer then there's the pc which is kind of reserved for people who are playing a keyboard instrument but also serving as the conductor at the show so at mean girls we have a pc which means mary mitchell while she is conducting she sees her piano parts and then our genius copyist emily grishman um who i call grish nasty she's the queen <laughs> um she and her team write in orchestral cues that will be important for a music director to acknowledge throughout the evening so we can see them and therefore we can kind of conduct that entrance or just be aware of that but also then we see our notes in kind of a bigger font um at a show like west side story we're conducting from the full score we don't even i don't believe a piano conductor score was made Mm. because alex um it's an it's a creative artistic decision he doesn't feel that that's a helpful tool for us obviously because we're not playing piano there on the podium so we do conduct from the tall vertical score which is you know multiple pages fun fact alex conducts this revival from memory entirely he doesn't even of put the book on the stand <laughs> oh my god um, which is just uh, amazing um and so that for that usually at least for broadway Typically, there's something called score annotation, which is kind of like a months long process where you highlight and put post-its in or make marks with a marker for time signature changes, huge entrances, cues for the singers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's those are just kind of the three kind of different scores that we tend to see as conductors. Mm. Now, do you just have you practiced by by looking at the scores and practicing with the scores or did you do the sadistic thing where you were <laughs> trying to listen to it and do it backwards? Have you ever tried that? <laughs> um, I have not tried that. Have you, Mary Mitchell? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what do we what do, have we tried? What if you've tried like listening? I guess I don't know if I'm just like gathering information to see whether that was a useful skill or not was to listen to the music once and then go back and try to conduct it anticipating the music. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've tried variations of that. I mean, like, it's an interesting thing because for me, scores, you know, I, the big orchestra scores like that, I, my big trial by fire with that was when I was in college. So when I was in college, I mean, I didn't take conducting classes like that but I did um I I did my co- my senior year of college my college choir speaking of choir nerds got mm-hmm. to perform with the Boston Pops for the big 4th of July concert Oh that's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. And so we all went to Boston wow. and um which was like a very big trip for me from from the south. And so I was like, "Woo, I'm going to Boston." And I we got there and um we got to our, and they, my choir director had been like, I was the, I was the like accompanist of the choir, but I was also an alto. Mm. Um, and so he had been very, very clear with me like, Hey, you will not be playing piano. 
like ever during this process because we're going to the Boston Pops and they have like a staff of people and it's they're very well staffed and it's all very taken care of. And so you're just going to be singing alto and which is, of course, incredibly important. I mean, we're very excited you're going to be there, but just know that none of your accompanist duties are involved. And I was like, got it. Super clear. Happy to be going to Boston. And then we got to Boston for the event and we got to our first rehearsal with Keith Lockhart and his accompanist didn't show up. And, um, and so it was just this weird fluke situation. And so he was like, who's the accompanist? And so would you mind playing? And I was like, of course I don't mind playing. Um, so I jumped on the piano and we did, we were doing this, um, version of the battle hymn of the Republic that was, it's called the Wolowski version. Do you know it, Meg? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it ends with it. It's like, it's this, you know, there's so many versions of this, right? But the, it ends with like double, oct- well, double octaves in the reduction anyway, at the end where people are singing glory, glory, and it's like, it's like, this is like very, very triumphant sounding um, the extra, arrangement. The extra bad yes, him. <laughs> it's like so extra. Yeah. It's like extra, extra. Um, and so um, I we took it like at a much slower tempo than Keith Lockhart did. So when we were getting close to that part, I was like, "Uh Oh, I don't know if double octaves are even possible at the speed that we're going. Mm. Um, And I just had a moment of like, what are you going to do? Are you going to sort of just do single octaves? Are you going to, you know, those, any kind of performance situation where you're like, something's very different. What am I going to do about it? But you're, you know, processing a lot of information and you usually make those decisions at the last second. Like you sort of see the problem coming and then you're like at the last second you make a choice. Mm. Um, I made a choice to try to play the double octaves. Oh my gosh. And so, and it, and I did, and he sort of stopped conducting and was like, whoa, like, hello, who, who are you? And so I became his, his accompanist never showed up, I guess, because I became his... <laughs> person for the rest of the day that sort of went around with him and played piano for different people and had to sight read for different people and and do different things so i ultimately got a job out of it where he took me on tour with the boston pops where i would play from open scores um because there were no piano reductions and that's when i really started to understand how to read scores was because i was in these like very odd situations where I was doing lots of transposing of, you know, the different instruments and, and making sure I could follow the open scores well enough to really accompany in the times when the pops weren't available. Um, when they were working with soloists or when they were working with choirs, um, I was that person. Wow. Yeah. The, wow. That's a, uh, that's crazy. And you were young though. You were like in high school, did you say? I was in college. In college. Yeah. In college. Well, that yeah, I was, it was I was young I was like whoo this is a lot yeah well that that is a lot and to just like sight read those open scores and then also just like how kismet that they were like you know you're not going to be required and then surprise yeah you are I know but it goes back to preparation yeah. right like it goes back to like be prepared because oh, you never know you never know <laughs> oh yeah and then that also brings me up to like you mentioned altos and like singing alto which for singers like being an excellent alto singer is really important and um that like 
I don't know. I, I kind of want to ask Meg, are you an alto too? Or are you, are you a soprano? I'm an alto. And because of the shutdown, many of us have started to have to do, you know, so much more virtual music than usual. Mm. I feel like now my range is like 10 or two, two, <laughs> like soprano one, just yeah. from recording parts and stuff. But naturally, <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah. my range has expanded yeah. on both yeah. sides. Well, I, wanted, I wanted to bring that up as like, yeah, like singer heavy, like choir nerd, but from the, the perspective of a singer and being that when I was in high school, the reason I can sight read all this shit really, really well is that I was doing all these like atonal crazy harmonies from being an alto. So I was an alto in choir and yeah, like went to all East as like first chair at States and was doing like, I, I kind of got to a point where I was bored at learning it. So I would just sight read it. Cause I was like, I don't have time to practice this. So just like, that's what it kind of turned into. And then I'd get bored while we were like singing it. And I would start to sing the other lines, which is not what you're supposed to do, but I did it. Um, but it was kind of like this thing with like altos. The reason I couldn't sing soprano yet was simply because I didn't know how to access that. And like, I'm currently trying to like, I'm getting trained as being um, like, a, like a voice teacher and doing pedagogy and understanding development of the voice. I'm going through IVA. Um, to kind of take all these classes. And it's so interesting that I feel like a lot of young sopranos that are just excellent musicians get put on alto, but they aren't actually altos. Like they actually are sopranos. They just don't know how to use it yet. You know, they haven't reached that passage and that, that ability to to transition or they're afraid of it, right? And they're like, oh, like, like I don't know. Have you, like, I, I honestly, you guys might be sopranos surprised, like, Mm, I don't know. Maybe I just rocked your world. Like, I don't know. It seems like your ranges have expanded. <laughs> yeah, my, I think our ranges have expanded. Maybe I shall delve more into soprano world. But um, but I hear you. I think it's like if you're a good musician, oftentimes you get put into the harmony mm -hmm. world. And I think that's a world that I've never minded being part of. No, yeah. But I will say, as Meg pointed out, having to make vocal guide tracks for people um, has really, I mean, I didn't even know that I could sing as low as I seem to be able to sing now. <laughs> um, and I think my top has grown a little bit, like maybe two or three notes higher. So yeah, it's weird. MMC, the, the, the range of a goddess. Honestly, singing in the rafters is so fun though. It's, it's real. It's a good time. Well, you sound glorious doing it, I will say. Oh, thank you. It's, it's interesting because like, I kind of feel like I bridge the two worlds of like it's not it's not like dense enough to be operatic necessarily because it's like it's very light and one could argue that I almost even like almost whistle the high notes like I don't have a lot of like rounding roundedness but I think in a choir setting like as far as like, you know, you usually have one person on that high C or whatever, but there are some sopranos that are so fat in their sound. They're like, hoo, hoo, hoo. it's so big, you know? And so I like I'm I will say I'm, I am pretty proud of how how light and like it kind of cuts over just like really not. It's just like a little cherry. It's just like boop. But I, I, I like physically don't know that I could make it like bellowy, you know, it's just I, I don't know. I don't know, but like from, okay, so this brings me into another question because I'm asking, I want to get all my music questions out of you while we're talking because like, mm, just going to squeeze it out like a piece of fruit. Okay, shaping a piece either with instruments, I guess, I guess I kind of want to know more about the vocals, but I, I love the sound of like the entire orchestra, but when, when you come to a rehearsal, right, 
I guess we'll, we'll ask from the singer perspective first. And you got all these professional singers and you're shaping an overall piece of music. What is that process like? Like, do you listen to it? Like, sometimes I guess you would have to listen to it for the first time in front of people unless you put it into a program. But do you do you go in having an idea of how you want to shape the piece? Or are you kind of just like, because sometimes I feel like music directors don't always listen to what's on the page. Like, they change dynamics all the time. So Meg, what's like your process of like, okay, we're, we're looking at a piece and we're going to shape the journey of the piece through dynamics and musicianship. How, like, yeah, like how do you, what's your process with that? Um, I think it depends on if it's a brand new musical kind of from scratch um, mm. and or if it's kind of set in the pop genre as opposed to something that's either a revival or more classically scored. Um, but either way, so so let's say with the classical revival kind of vibe, Coming in with, I would say, an overreaching knowledge about the originating style. So, you know, what level of vibrato is used? Um, what kind of shaping? What are the dynamic contrasts that historically are performed with this piece? And then just setting it and making a kind of individual and customized onto the singers. I generally like to do that just on the first day of hearing it, um, kind of impromptu because I think that that kind of reaches the most natural product then of course we have to change our mind sometimes if we set music and then it is choreographed to be <laughs> impossible yeah. for them to hold eight beats and then it might become six and it might need to be a straight tone instead of vibrato so I think it's a, a definitely a really fluid thing but it's one of my favorite things to do just kind of look at shaping and dynamics and making the arc of the piece musically yeah 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 I guess it gets really that's part of the collaboration though right like people are gonna come and be like this is the this is what they're gonna do now and they're like jumping up and down and there's no way they can hold it oh my gosh uh MMC what's your perspective on that what's your process I mean not surprisingly I agree with everything that I just said um and I think it's pretty similar I mean I think I do spend a lot of time um really thinking about sort of why why people are singing mm. um sort of what's the context and especially in the ensemble world it's like why is this group of people singing mm. like why are they involved mm. <laughs> what is the and what can they bring to the table from a dramaturgical standpoint so i do love to like the only thing i'll add to what meg just said which i a thousand percent agree with is is you know that we also get to the opportunity to add in the drum the dramaturgical concepts and and really understand more about um the meaning behind why we're singing yeah which is exciting yeah the motivation i mean that's like you know it's like musical theater 101 which i think so many people forget about which is like what you know when you can't talk anymore you sing when singing isn't enough you dance right which is like a little bit like okay but at the same time it's true if you don't know the motivation behind why you're singing you know, that's good. That's supposed to help escort the story along. And that that makes a lot of sense to approach it from from that that perspective. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I haven't thought of it that way um, as far as like, oh, like shaping the piece from 
yeah, like what just happened, where do we need to be sort of thing. It's almost like an acting exercise, the way that you shape the piece then. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it affects dynamic, you know, all of the the framing of the piece, the flow, the build, the dynamics, the ways you lean on specific words. I mean, that's where I feel like we get to do all that kind of stuff and, um, and it becomes really creative and fun. And as Meg said, like if it's a new piece, you know, you're sort of, you kind of are discovering it along with the writers because no one really knows what you have. And then if it's a, not a new piece, then it's about what can you uncover that is new, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and then once you have decided the shape and you've discovered that and you've tinkered around with it and, you know, everyone's practiced different different ways of doing it and you decide um, – it, what I want to bring up is it's so fascinating right now, like how people are able to like what they're trying to do in the meantime to continue creating in this way. Or if there's like Ratatouille, the musical, for example, like there's like stuff that people are doing. And actually Alex involved me in a concert where he had done all of that shaping, you know, before, because you have to, there's no way to like practice on zoom all together and decide that. So he gave us like, Oh my, like I was, I don't even like 10 or 11 pages of I don't even know I don't know if that's an accurate amount but extensive notes on these musical cutoffs and like most it was mostly cutoffs which is really important for them to make it succinct like remotely and watching it but I just like knew when I got that I was like oh we gotta mark this in (laughs) like you gotta make sure you do this exactly and it was interesting because like watching it back it was like, yeah, if you could see people, like obviously they muted people um, who were still holding it out when they weren't, like they didn't listen to the cutoff. Um, but they look kind of silly because their mouths are just like, uh, like open. <laughs> Everyone else is closed. It's just, it was so interesting. Have you guys been like trying to like play around with that, that remote, that remote production of music and, and, you know, kind of filming? Have you guys been trying that? And like, what has your experience been like with that, Meg? Um, yeah, I guess I wouldn't say trying. I would say that it is just what everyone is doing. It's where like, you know, yes, we are in a shutdown, but the industry is continuing and especially the benefit and gala aspect of the industry Mm. is continuing because it needs to these theaters, especially, you know, regional theaters or Uh, Broadway cares these organizations need to stay open and a way to do that is through making virtual art and and I would say yes you know I'm speaking into a mic right now it is a very different skill than singing into a body mic in a in a thousand seat theater and suddenly the details become nine million thousand times um, more kind of pristine and important to oblige because it's it's just a different form of kind of like auditory experience yeah and and then it's also on camera which is interesting and it coming having all these like stage performers come because most of us train to like we know like you got to make it smaller but it's it's interesting watching um musical theater it's supposed to be musical theater performances but it's still on camera and you're like oh now i understand (laughs) i understand right like the tv film version of the musical theater performances exactly exactly so whether we want to or not we gotta figure out how to do the tv film version yeah um mmc what's your what's your experience with with the virtual at least yeah 
Uh, yeah, I mean, similar to Meg. I mean, it's a whole new world, right? Yeah. Like it's a completely different, and it's come out of necessity. And I, I do kind of love that. There's elements of it that drive me insane, obviously, yeah. because you know we went into we went into theater because it's a team sport and we miss the team yeah you know i think that's the thing is like for me it's like oh i miss the team but um but you know the i started off the pandemic by ridiculously and um hilariously doing this sondheim concert with both alex germinani and meg mm. um for you know this birthday the 90th birthday celebration we did mm. as a benefit for a step and you had all those and stars right there was like star studded we did it was like bizarre it was like Raul Spars and I put that together we had the idea we were going to ask 10 people and um I mean it just all dramatically changed and it was a ve- very much a product of a specific moment of the pandemic a phase of the pandemic that we were in mm-hmm. at that time that will not be replicated. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was an amazing trial by fire. I mean, I was like, really had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it was great because, you know, it's like, okay, well then we'll learn. Um, and we did, we learned a lot. And then I've done, you know, a gazillion different types of benefits and concerts and things since then. I, I'm, I'm recently, it's funny you brought up the Ratatouille thing because just this morning I got into a conversation yesterday about this Bridgerton. Oh my god! TikTok. Okay, well this morning you're gonna appreciate. Oh, it. So yesterday I, I hadn't even seen Bridgerton, but like I got up really early this morning and I watched a couple episodes <laughs> and I did like the deep dive of um going down. I like I still am trying to understand TikTok because I'm old, but I'm figuring it out. And so, um, but I went down the dive of like looking at material. It's really good. It's so actually. good, like, guys. It's so have you seen good. it, Meg? It's really good. Yeah, I've seen some of the stuff. Emily Bear, I, I heard of when she was, you know, a tot, kind of like on the Today Show, and then to just make the connection. And also, it's Anna Grace Barlow's sister. I know, <laughs> I know, and I caught that. So Meg and I worked with um, Anna Grace Barlow in in Atlanta on the prom. And so it's, yeah, it's her sister. (laughs) Anyway, it's like, um, it's, you know, it's an, it's amazing. I was, I'm just so inspired by what people are, how people are finding ways to be creative, because I do truly believe that one of the things that is most important during this time is finding ways to connect and to be creative. Mm. And so they, and I feel like they're accomplishing both of those things in such a beautiful way and, you know, God bless TikTok for existing and being able to provide that kind of connection and 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 allow for that kind of creativity because I think it only benefits everybody. Yeah. Honestly, God bless TikTok. Like helping – like I got like a bunch of views on a YouTube video because of a TikTok trend that I didn't even know about. And all of a sudden my YouTube's blowing up and I'm like, what's happening? And just watching – oh, my – honestly, what's so unique about the Bridgerton um, – thing is that they're so like first like they're just yeah they're they're so transparent and and they they'll like go on instagram live and they will just write in front of the world basically which to me is terrifying because when i write i'm like so private and like like i'm like i i have to like it's like pulling teeth to get me to share something but it's like they're so confident and yeah radiance I think a good word to describe them because they're just so in flow you know and and they know like it's it's simply like 
I mean, this was a matter of weeks ago that this started. Like they, the original TikTok of Abigail was just her being like, but what if Bridgerton was a musical? Like that's her, that's the video. But what if? And her kind of previewing, I mean, from our perspective, it's just like snippets of of what they're doing, but they're writing it and involving everybody in the process. And then as a singer, like, like I just did it because at first I was like, oh, like I don't want to do the trance or you're dumb. Like, I'm a, but no, actually, no, they're not dumb and they're very fun and everyone should do them. And um, I did this one. And yeah, dude, it's so fun to sing. Like, have you guys, I mean, there's obviously right now there's the duet with, so this is what you call a honeymoon, that one. And then there's. Oh, yeah. I, I went down that rabbit hole. Oh. I went down a few rabbit holes today and it was pretty fascinating. Well, you also got to keep watching Bridgerton because it gets real sexy. So you got to it's a little like, OK, pride OK, it, OK, just keep on it. Keep you keep. Going. I'm only two. I'm only two episodes <laughs> in. So, you know, it feels like Gossip Girl to me. Yeah. Like set in a, you know, different era. Basically. Yeah. It's Gossip Girl meets like. Pride and Prejudice meets like sexy time, like that. <laughs> but it's but it's Julie Andrews doing the lo- the yes. voiceover, right? Yes. I mean, it's like it has to be because I actually worked with her at Good Speed one year, and yeah. it was yeah, we did um, with Zena Goldrich and and Marcy Heisler. We I did the the Great American Mousical musical that she directed, and um, and it was just such a trip to be able to be in a room with her and watch her work and hear her stories and oh my god oh it was amazing that's, yeah that's but anyway so when i heard the voice i was like that's jules because she goes by jules but anyway. she does it was great now i know yeah. inside about julie andrew's nickname i'm like oh my inside, god yes insider <laughs> info on her nickname <laughs> that's amazing yeah it, it was so i was like who is that british like but then when you i looked at the credits and i'm like oh fuck that's that's Julie Andrews, like yeah, royalty. royalty, royalty, and it's a Shonda Rhimes show, yeah, because it's Shonda. Land. Yeah, it's Shonda Land. I'm assuming it is. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, anything Shonda Rhimes like produces is like automatically gold. So, which is impressive because she's she's one of those people that I feel like has been able to really expand without changing quality. Yeah, yeah, oh. um, which I think is really hard to do. Oh, absolutely, and just like different. Just such different um, universes as far – I mean, obviously Grey's Anatomy. And then I guess it's someone else wrote – I forget the person that wrote it. I, I That's bad because, like, they have such a – they have such a, a – obviously a role in creating the show, but it's produced by her company. So um, I believe, like – I also was looking at a story. Speaking of, like, mentorship, kind of, like, kind of going back to that really quick, um, there are two mentorship stories that inspired the shit out of me. First of all, was the Shonda Rhimes and the guy that wrote Bridgerton. Um, I guess he served as her assistant for a really long time. And then finally he like presented her the script for the show. And she was like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go. We're going to produce this. And so there was that story of mentorship. And even with Abigail Barlow, actually, I was watching her TikTok because like I'm obsessed with it now. (laughs) I can't not watch it. (laughs) And um, she was talking about... um, how Megan Trainer found her on on Instagram or on TikTok or something and took her under her wing and helped her produce her singles and Megan and like Abigail kind of being like wait I don't understand like why are you helping me and Megan Trainer being like because I believe in you and it's like this video of Abigail basically like almost in tears of gratitude of like 
the like I don't think mentors often know like what an impact they have on um on the person they're mentoring it's it's pretty incredible and honestly as soon as I watched that video of Abigail I like I was lying in bed I was like yep I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna write a song and I literally got up and wrote a song because I was like oh this like the inspiration that's pouring in right now in the world at least even just through this is so powerful and Meg like are you on the train yet or like you've heard about it but you're like not quite obsessed yet. Like, where are you at? <laughs> um, I've watched a couple episodes and plan to continue for sure. And then mm-hmm. I, I think I read an article about the the musical, and then took did a little deep dive on TikTok as well. It's awesome. Such great writing, actually. It is. It is. It is really high quality writing. I, 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 I guess my expectations were maybe not so high because of TikTok, but I, I was, I was like, oh, I stand corrected. This is very good. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it almost like the musical quality of it. This this part this is this episode is turning into a deep dive into British and the musical <laughs> with MMC and Meg from Broadway. Um, but um, it kind of it's given me like some like Natasha Pierre, like great comet vibes. It's given me, but which Meg worked on. You did, Meg. Oh, that's amazing. I did. Yeah, I was a an assistant conductor there. So. Oh I joined God. kind of during previews and then um, conducted a couple performances. But that they definitely the score does have some likenesses for sure. It is as it has that like kind of classical, but also like is there something very unique about it? And uh, they also seem like a very difficult score. I mean, certainly compared to other musicals, it's like or other pop shows. Really, it seemed like it was stimulating musically like what was that like to conduct and work on (laughs) oh um that one was really difficult we Mm -hmm. had to sing um we had a lot of ableton which many shows at this point have um we were costumed Mm -hmm. uh we were kind of in the round so it was just it was an extremely exposed situation and there was a lot of playing and there were often um celebrity cast members with very unique um kind of needs in terms of tempi and dynamics and there were a lot of kind of like piano solo really intimate moments so it was it was a really highly challenging um but super exciting and ultimately very fun experience i wish it lasted longer yeah yeah i was i was honestly just talking about that show this morning and how just beautiful it is and um, would you would you count that as like I guess one of my last questions that I'll have you guys answer here because we've been we've been nerding out on music for almost uh, an hour and a half. Um, but have you um, what was like the most challenging musical experience that you've kind of come across? Uh, who do you want to start? <laughs> oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, um, Mary Mitchell. Go okay, ahead. I'll give you two versions. Well, two very okay. they're they're a bit, a bit different. Um, I would say the first, the first one is more, is less about the, well, sort of about the music. So it was, I did the Adams family. Um, Mm -hmm. and when we were in Chicago, we had like a lot of revelations around the show that ultimately resulted in changing personnel and, um, and bringing in sort of new, a new concept to the show. So we, we, we were on a schedule to close the show in Chicago and then open it back in New York 
um, pretty quickly after, and we had very little time between. And we decided to radically rewrite the show in a very short amount of time. Oh my gosh. I think it was like three weeks that we had. And so that was a crazy challenge just because, um, you know, you just didn't, we didn't build a schedule that was sort of with that in mind. We didn't have another Zitz probe plan. We didn't have like any of the normal things that you would have set up for a new musical. Um, we just didn't have anything built in as it, as if it was going to be a massive re restructuring and then it was. So that was pretty challenging, but we all kind of just what everyone canceled their vacations that they had scheduled for between the out of town and Broadway. And we all just sort of hunkered down in like some rooms and it, it was um, like a boot camp. It was hilarious. So that was kind of how we came through that. Um, and then the other one that comes to mind is actually very musical and nerdy, which is that I did with John Doyle. We did a thing called um, the ladies who sing Sondheim, which was celebrating Sondheim through all of his amazing work, writing for women characters. And we had, we did it for a, a concert a benefit up in Connecticut for Paul Newman um, for his Westport Playhouse, Westport Country Playhouse. And it had been really successful. We had had Patti Lapone and uh, Laura Benanti and, oh, Barbara Cook. And, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember who else was in that. It was like a, it was a crazy group of people. Um, and... With that, we then decided to do it in New York City at a Broadway theater to benefit the acting company. And we had kept Laura Benanti and Patti LaPone from it, but they were doing Gypsy at the time. They both got sick. They both canceled the day before because they had to because they were calling out of shows. Mm. And obviously they could not be calling out of Broadway shows and then go do a benefit on their day off, Mm. quote unquote. So they canceled – our benefit, but we had 24 hours notice and they were singing eight songs of the evening. So it was a pretty massive shift. So we just started randomly, you know, trying to replace them. And it was an actor musician performance. So I had to sort of reorchestrate everything on the fly and, uh, and reimagine it, but they also didn't have, they wanted different keys. So it was a lot of sight transposing mm. that I was doing. And the day of the event was just sort of a flurry of insanity. And then I remember it was six o'clock and the thing was starting at seven. And I realized, oh no, I have to perform all of these pieces that I just oh my God. <laughs> put in different keys and like did all this crazy stuff around. And I've not, I have no time to practice. Um, and I'm going to walk out on a Broadway stage and I'm going to do that. And that's gonna happen. Preparation <laughs> from reading here. Yeah, and I was like, I, I, I literally had a moment where I was like, I wonder what would happen if I walked out the door and I just never came back. <laughs> like, like what would happen exactly? Like, would my career be over? Would it or would it? Like, I was that kind of that kind of nervousness. <laughs> but um, I ended up. Coming back, I mean, you know, obviously I was like, you can't leave. Um, so I came back <laughs> and did the show. But I remember thinking, okay, the only thing you can do at this moment is be as present as possible. Mm-hmm. Let anything that goes badly go immediately because I'm the person who does not like to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was like, take it one measure at a time, one measure at a time. That was my mantra, one measure at a time, <laughs> one measure at a time. Oh and sort of, and, that, and it, it, 
went okay. Like all things considered, I think it went pretty well, but it was definitely one of the moments where you're like, okay, this is happening. Just <laughs> this is happening. One foot in front of the other. Okay, we're we're moving. Okay, we're inchworming through the concert. Yeah. I don't know if Meg wants to tell this story, but you should hear her prom opening night story. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's so many different forms of like what was the most difficult or challenging moment. Um, aside from technical difficulty, like, you know, playing concerto competitions when you're 11, um, <laughs> the prom situation was crazy. Our opening night happened on that huge blizzard that shut down Broadway a couple years ago. Mm. And um, as a result of it, we were missing our sound mixer until like 45 minutes after the posted opening time. So he eventually made it, but we had to hold the show and we never were able to have two of our musicians. So we had to kind of find subs that happened to be local, never saw the show before because, of course, it's opening night. We don't even have our sub policies kind of ready to go yet nobody has made copies of their book there's no pdfs you're not sharing audio of the of the show yet um especially for instrumentalists and it was just it was crazy i don't remember much when i saw actually my mom and mmc i think were sitting together (laughs) and mmc was helping all night long contacting people who might be able to send somebody who was a read doubler um we we ultimately started the show without a woodwind player and the guy yeah the guy arrived and somebody crawled into the pit (laughs) yeah crawled into the pit maybe didn't know it was a headphone show and like just started playing but there was a click going so we had to like use dancing symbols to to tell him to put his headphones on um our associate conductor ted arthur who's also grown into being one of my closest friends um and an amazing music director yeah so sweet he's so sweet so sweet heart of gold he during the scenes had to run out of his room um at at prom we were in a smaller theater long acre theater so we had a lot of kind of side rooms where each player was placed Um, He would run out of his room during the scenes and go to the bass room and kind of teach the bass player the next cue or just what to know, like when to look at Meg or this is when the click starts. It was crazy. I, after the show, don't even remember what the audience response was like. I remember asking my mom, like, I couldn't hear the audience because it was just a state of shock. But you're also carrying this show on your shoulders and it matters so much opening night and the result of that evening matters just so much it's even hard to describe and so it was similar to what mmc was saying just measure by measure just get through the show and aim for the end like see at the end (laughs) but um yeah that was that was definitely the most situationally difficult experience i've ever had it was a crisis management triumph though for meg i will say um, and, and and I got to I was doing my version of being on the other side, like, you know, trying to help navigate from where I was. But I, I have to say, I knew that it was in such capable hands. Like, that was a great relief. Like, I never had any moments of worry for Meg because I just had seen her handle crisis so beautifully. But it is a funny thing. These are the things that you don't think about when you train. Like, you're like, these are not things these are not scenarios people prepare you for. <laughs> yeah, you just have to do it and like that's that's it. That's all you got. Just uh keep going. 
Wow, that's incredible. All right, I'm going to give you one more question to kind of wrap up our conversation just to leave our listeners. For, well, this was like an incredibly fascinating conversation. So thank you, ladies, for being so generous and sharing so many amazing things and experiences that you've had. Um, if there's anything else, A, that you either want to share to promote or if there's something um, inspirational or any piece of advice, like say you're mentoring um, someone that's perhaps listening to this and like one thing that you could share just about like overall success or work ethic, obviously preparedness is something we mentioned earlier, but any other little golden nuggets or things you'd like to mention before we wrap up here? Um, let's start with Meg. Sure. Um, just a kind of a golden nugget I think that has been helpful to me is to present yourself as you are. Um, I think we kind of alluded to that earlier in our talk, but it, it just be being in your own body and presenting your skills that you know that you have honed and that you have and, and whatever that means for the background that you bring to each situation. I just think that um, even if it doesn't get you on the fastest route, it does feel like um, it, it can garner such wonderful results. So that's um, kind of a big global, global thought. Oh yeah. That's beautiful and very important. Thank you for that. And then um, MMC, do you want to leave, leave a little nugget? Sure. I mean, the one thing that I will say that I feel like I've learned, um, over the years, and this is both in my own life and watching it play out in other people's lives, is just helping people know that there is no holy grail in the sense that um, there's no job or person or title or experience or salary that's going to make you feel complete if you don't already. Like you have to do that work to to feel complete and do and to feel um like happy that, that that happiness comes from within it it really does because i've watched so many people myself included like hit these major milestones that they that are huge and are still worth celebrating and i'm not taking anything away from them but they don't solve your life you don't wake up the next day and everything's perfect mm. and um and i've watched a lot of young people make their broadway debut and think okay that's it smooth sailing from here it's like no <laughs> that's oh. actually just not real um, and so the, the sooner you can sort of know that, I feel like the sooner you can, can be living without waiting for that thing to happen that's going to um, make you feel like you can do whatever it is you want to do. The, those doors are open to you now. And the only other thing I would say is that, um, you know, the arts are happening in this crazy time in these very unusual ways. And we're not stopping, we're not stopped from being creative, but when this lifts and we all do come back, I, I just believe that arts and artists are going to be so needed. So I just hope people are going to um, continue to do their work during this time and, and be on the ready because storytelling and empathy and compassion is going to be really, really important as we all kind of move through this together as a globe. Mm. Amen. Meg just said that in the chat. She's like, amen. And honestly, yes. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And what an amazing way to put a button on our our conversation here. I want to thank you guys so, so, so much for being so generous with your time and with your skill and your stories and sharing it. This is such a special episode and I'm I'm so grateful to have had you guys on here. Thank you, Sarah. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Of course. You guys have a wonderful day.
You too. You too. And that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Also to leave us a rating and review that helps us get more people to listen in. I hope you're starting your week or ending your week or whenever you're listening to this feeling inspired and that you have a jolly good time until I talk to you next Monday. And on that note, have a great week, guys. Thanks.